This is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings, and I'm your host, Greg Campion. On this show, we intend to dig below the headlines to find out what's really going on in public and private asset markets around the world. From fixed income and equities to alternatives and real estate, we'll be speaking with Bearings experts from across the globe to get a glimpse into where they're seeing risks and opportunities today. If you like the show and want to hear more from us, just search Bearings on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and click subscribe or visit us on bearings.com. That's B-A-R-I-N-G-S.com. On today's show, I spoke with Dr. Ricardo Adroge and Omatunde Lawal on the topic of emerging markets debt. Ricardo leads the efforts on all things global sovereign debt and currencies here at Bearings. He is a portfolio manager for Bearings EM local debt, sovereign debt, and blended total return strategies. A native of Argentina, Ricardo joined the firm in 2013. He's worked in the industry since 1992, including time spent at the IMF as country desk head for several emerging markets. Tunde is head of emerging markets corporate debt here at Barings. She leads the fund management efforts for Barings emerging market corporate debt and short duration strategies. A native of Nigeria, Tunde joined the firm in 2014 and has worked in the industry since 2000. Ricardo Tunde and their broader team manage a variety of emerging market debt strategies that cover a broad spectrum from local currency and sovereign debt to corporate, short duration, and blended total return strategies. Two things stood out to me in today's conversation. First, it was really interesting to hear Ricardo and Tunde discuss how they think emerging markets debt might fare in a slowing economic environment. Second, I found it fascinating to get a window into how the team is thinking about some of the more challenged regions in emerging markets today and how they're finding opportunities in some places that might actually surprise you. And with that, here's our conversation. All right, Ricardo, Tunde, thank you guys very much for being here. Thank, thank you for you. having us. So, Tunde, I'd like to start with you, and, and I'm hoping you can help us frame it up a little bit and just give us a little sense of emerging markets debt as a broad universe. And, you know, what kind of companies are we talking about? What kind of sovereign issuers, et cetera? How big is this market? Can you just help us kind of paint that picture, give us that framework. Absolutely. So thank you for having us. And when we speak about emerging markets debt, we're actually talking about three distinct sub-strategies within emerging market debt. And in terms of the universe, this is an asset class that has come out of its infancy to become more of a, I would say, teenager in terms of, (laughs) for want of a better description. In terms of um, size of the market, on the local side, the universe is roughly $7.5 trillion, whereas on the EM corporate side, you've got $2.1 trillion universe. And on the EM hard currency sovereign, you've got a trillion dollar universe. And this compares to the USIG universe of $5.7 trillion right. and the US high yield market of about $1.5 trillion as well. So, And with, within EM, when we say EMD, we've got of diversification and the breadth across various sectors. We've got 70 plus countries. Mm-hmm. We've got issuers across the rating spectrum. We've got all the way through from a double A all the way through to a triple C. We've got various maturity and tenor buckets. We've got century bonds. I mean, it's a very well-developed asset class on its own. Yeah, that's great context. And it's hard to generalize when speaking about an asset class, I guess, like emerging markets debt, uh, because it is so broad and has um, issuers across the rating spectrum, sectors, et cetera, et cetera. Um, You mentioned that it kind of comes in three different flavors. So, Ricardo, talk to us about what these three sub-asset classes of EMD actually are. Yeah, so there's three sub-asset classes. One is the hard currency corporates. 
The second one is hard currency sovereigns. And the third one is local bonds. That is bonds issued in the local jurisdictions in the countries themselves. Now, the underlying risks do not map exactly with those three, meaning there's basically three risks that investors can tap on or three sources of returns. One is the risk of default or credit risk. And that credit risk is expressed at the corporate level in the hard currency corporate bonds and at the sovereign level on the hard currency sovereign bonds. The risk that a corporate or a sovereign fails to pay back the investor that has bought their bond. The second type of risk is the risk of currency, and that is in the local markets, the same risk that it would be on an equity product that has local equities of the different countries. This is the currencies of the different countries that affect the performance of the investments on those uh, local markets. And the third one is the interest rate. And this one is the least understood in the markets. The interest rate risk is the risk that the country rates go up and investor loses money because their bonds go down. And the reason that the investor loses money and rates go up is because the central bank needs to hike rates because the economy may be overheating. This is a very different type of risk than the credit risk. It's kind of the opposite of the credit risk because these bonds tend to go up when the market is softening, much like U.S. Treasuries go up when the U.S. economy softens. Um, and that is exactly the time that the hard currency bonds tend to suffer. Okay, so we have these sub-asset classes, local, sovereign, and corporate, very much related but somewhat different drivers as to their actual returns. Tony, when you look at the corporate segment of that market, what is really driving the performance in those bonds? I think on the corporate side, what drives the performance is very much the fundamentals of the corporate issuers themselves. It's that credit risk that's underlying and embedded within each issuer. And what we're looking for when we typically are investing in that is the business model. How sustainable the business model is it? What are the financial metrics? What do the cash flow projections look like? What are my protections as an investor in a specific instrument vis-a-vis -vis my covenants? What is the macro backdrop? What are my inflation projections? What is the FX projection for the macro backdrop that the companies in. Mm -hmm. We look at the ESG considerations. And we put all that together. We look at the regulatory backdrop. Is there any regulatory headwinds that might affect the company? And it's very much the fundamentals that we look at within the corporate space. So let's turn now to a discussion on the overall economic backdrop for emerging markets. And what I'd like to do is just take a look um, to start at, at what the IMF is saying. So they've recently come out with their World Economic Outlook, uh, in which they lowered their uh, output forecast to 3.5% for 2019 from 3.7% previously. Still pretty healthy growth, I would say, by most uh, measures. And that breaks down as follows, advanced economies at 2%, emerging and developed economies at 4.5%. And just for context, they've got the U.S. at 2.5% growth. China at 6.2% growth. Um, I will note that they do say that the risks to the forecast are on the downside. So they say risks to global growth tilt to the downside, an escalation of trade tensions beyond those already incorporated in the forecast remains a key source of risk to the outlook. And as we look at some of these risks that emerging markets have faced, um, it's interesting to me that some of them appear to be receding somewhat relative to where we were just a few months back. And specifically, I'm thinking about headwinds like rising U.S. interest rates, capital outflows, falling commodity prices, trade tensions. You know, certainly none of those have really 
necessarily gone away completely. It seems like maybe they're less of headwinds than they were even just a few months back. So I guess with that as a backdrop, Ricardo, can you talk to us just about your overall sense of what does the picture look like for emerging markets from an economic standpoint? So emerging markets benefit from high growth and low interest rates. Uh, in the environment that you described that the IMF has put out a slower growth, that would in itself be somewhat negative for emerging markets. However, this time around is slightly different because the link between global growth and emerging market growth has been weakened by trade tariffs that the U.S. Uh, has imposed on um, a lot of imports, U.S. imports. And so the U.S. has in the past, in 2018, been able to grow uh, faster than emerging markets and faster than other parts of the world like Europe. And at the same time, because of its high growth, the U.S. interest rates were going higher. So emerging markets was, were facing higher interest rates, which is bad for emerging markets and not necessarily the benefits of higher U.S. growth or higher developed market growth particularly U.S., because Europe actually has weakened. So into 2019, we think that some of that has changed. Uh, slower growth is allowing the Fed to stay pat, and that should be clearly a much better environment for emerging markets. Now, as you say, Greg, the um, trade war or the trade disputes are far from over. There's a lot of discussion on the table. We do not know exactly what is the end goal of the trade restrictions that the U.S. is imposing on China, whether it is a true change in uh, political dynamics within China or if it is just the imbalances that President Trump continuously talked about or has in the past talked about. And that will depend a lot on how uh, these issues get resolved and the impact that that will have on global growth and emerging market growth. So you mentioned that for debt investments, um, growth may be not as necessary, especially relative to an asset class like equities. Is there a scenario that you can see whereby developed markets, U.S., Europe, et cetera, go into a recession or at least a significantly slower growth period and emerging markets continue to do well or at least the emerging market debt asset class continues to do well? Is that a possibility? Certainly so, um, both because in that environment, to the extent that the recession is not too deep in developed markets in Europe and U.S., will translate into significantly easier financial conditions from the Fed and the ECB. And secondly, because these emerging markets have the currencies as the shock absorber and they have been very successfully used. I think that that's a great point that Ricardo also makes is that also from a EM corporate perspective, a lot of the corporates rely on the easing of liquidity and availability of credit. And that sometimes is one of the key drivers for spread levels and return uh, performance within our EM corporate space. An example of that is in China, where in 2018, you had much tighter credit conditions and that affected spread levels. But as we come into 2019, we're seeing some easing of those credit and liquidity conditions, and that is helping provide some spread compression within the China space. Yeah. I mean, how, how do you guys see the next couple of years playing out with regards to China? I mean, it's obviously such an important country and such a, such a huge driver for emerging markets, commodity markets, et cetera, et cetera. Um, are you kind of on, in the more bullish or bearish camp? On both. <laughs> Tune this on the more bullish side and on the more bearish side. <laughs> Very balanced. <laughs> 
there's two interpretations of what's going on in China. One is that the administration is unable to uh, push the economy to re-engage with substantial level of growth. Um, the other one is that the economy is uh, has slowed down with the blessing of the administration in China. Uh, if it is the latter, it would be positive development, not necessarily near term for emerging markets because the soft Chinese growth is not great. Uh, for emerging markets because China demands a lot of things from emerging markets, a lot of products and services from emerging markets. Uh, the former scenario in which the uh, administration in China has lost control of its own economy, it would be more troublesome. Um, I would tend to lean more on the latter case, that they haven't done more because they don't want to push the economy past the sustainable level rather than their lack of ability. And so in that sense, I'm not too concerned. I think the other thing to sort of put in context is, you know, we talk about China a lot and we talk about China's slowdown, but this is a very gradual slowdown. Mm. And this is an economy that's still growing at six and change sure. percent, yeah. which is by any means and by any standards within EM, I think it's only perhaps India that's growing faster than that. Mm. But it's still very decent in itself. And you're coming off a larger base effect as well. So if it's a gradual slowdown and within that you can still find world class companies, very strong balance sheets, very good management teams, there is still scope and opportunity opportunity for investment within within those, I think, by all means, we can have a negatively trending view on the sovereign, mm -hmm. but that doesn't preclude us from finding good corporates that we can invest in to take advantage of the elevated spread levels. Let's turn our attention to what you are liking out there today and what maybe does not look so attractive. So, um, Tunde, can I start with you and can you just give us a, a sense of what are the approximate yields at a market index level that are available across the sub-asset classes today in emerging market debt? Right, absolutely. So within EM, I think you get at the index level on the local side, you're probably getting six, six and a half percent type yield. And on the hard currency sovereign, you're also getting six, six and a quarter type percent yield. Whereas on the EM corporate at the index level, you're getting five and a half percent. And this compares to US high yield where you're probably getting close to seven percent. But I will hasten to add there, it's not quite apples for apples right. because on the US high yield, you're getting pure high yield. Whereas on the EM corporate at the SEMB level, you're 55% IG. So yep. when you tilt that and you look probably only at the high yield component of the SMB our uh, EM corporate index, you're probably getting close to 7% as well. So that makes it a little bit more comparable in terms of the yields that you can right. get. And the other component there is also the type of uh, duration that the different indices represent. So as Tunde said, the hard currency sovereign and the local sovereign have roughly the same yield but one has a duration of about seven, the other one a duration of five. And the corporate that has a lower yield has significantly lower durations around four. four and a half years mm -hmm. duration. Mm -hmm. I think your comparison around what's what's available in the SEMBI, which of course is JP Morgan's um, EM corporate bond index, uh, is quite compelling. Can, can you tell us a little more, give us a couple of examples of maybe where you are seeing value, where at a headline level, you might think this country it looks pretty risky, but when you go down to the corporate level, it's actually pretty interesting. Absolutely. I mean, there, there are several examples off the top of my head for that. But I, I think within the portfolios at the moment, we very much like the China property space. I think within that, you can get two, three-year duration. You can get paid 8% yield around that. These are double B corporate. Some of them are split rated IG high yield type investment instruments where you can get 
sort of 8% type change uh, yield on that. We find those very interesting. I think within Turkey also, that's another country that had sort of stressed macro backdrop within mm-hmm. 2018. Mm-hmm. As we're coming off of that, we're seeing very good investment opportunities within the short dated Turkish bank senior paper as well, which again, going out to 2020-2021 type maturity, you can get paid 8-ish percent type mm-hmm. yield on that. I think not, not just limited to that, I think within the sovereign space on the hard currency sovereign side as well, we're seeing very good opportunity, high single digit type yield with things like province of Buenos Aires, which is one of the strongest provinces within Argentina, you're mm. getting paid eight, nine percent yield there as well. Hmm. Ricardo, how about from a local perspective? Mexico is potentially one of our most controversial calls today in the market. Um, investors seem to uh, sometimes act simplistically and because they don't like Mexico because it's a leftist government, um, and for the same reason they like Brazil, which is a right-wing government, we actually like them both. We think uh, in both cases, there are good reasons for those countries to go through these political transitions. These political transitions allowing the full political spectrum of a country to be represented in government at different points in time is actually beneficial and strengthens the democracy of those countries. So we like Brazil much like the markets do, and we like Mexico for similar reasons. It used to be run by uh, the right, if you will, um, since 1917, and now they have a government from the left that is likely to uncover a lot of corruption and is potentially going to be very, very beneficial for Mexico. Right. So if the simplistic view is that a leftist regime is now in place in Mexico and therefore it's less attractive, you and your team have a little bit of a different read on that. It's really interesting to me, the level of conviction you have there. Uh, what do you think it is exactly that people are missing? It starts with the fact that it's elected government. So it puts at risk property rights. Just by the definition of being leftist, you put at risk property rights, which in itself is not a good thing. And I would agree with that. Um, however, it also, what the markets seem to be completely missing, is the fact that this is a president that has run for the presidency several times. He's an older guy that has very set opinions about uh, his thoughts, and he has when he has gone through the trouble of publishing those thoughts in several books. If you read them, uh, President Andrés Manuel López Obrador has explicitly said exactly what he was going to be doing in his presidency. The first thing that he did was to annul the contract of the airport, the Mexico City airport, and the markets interpreted that as he is not somebody that is reliable. I interpreted it as he's the most reliable person that I can see on the other side of the table. He had told me that in his book, that he was going to be doing that. And he had told me also that he was going to be conservative fiscally, and he was going to be respectful of monetary policy independence. The latter two are very good indications, very good things, and he has followed through with them. And so for that reason, I would really like the presidency of Andrés Manuel López Obrador. I think Ricardo makes a very good point in that the market initially got spooked by the cancellation of that Mexico City airport. And I think it comes from a point where the market just didn't have enough data points on how to analyze AMLO's behavior. And I think the more months that go past and the more we see the rhetoric that's coming out of him, the more data points the market is getting on how to analyze him. I think the same thing is what we see on the energy side, on the energy reform side. He's been very vocal about how important the energy sector is and how important Pemex is within the energy sector. And we've seen that come through in small forms and in slightly smaller steps and increments that we might have liked, but he is providing um, support to Pemex. Pemex, everyone knows, is a very highly indebted um, 
quasi-sovereign entity. It's a company that needs a lot of support from the government. And the government is starting to come through. We've had supports on some tax breaks coming through. And these are coming through in increment, but perhaps a little bit slower than the market would mm-hmm. like them mm-hmm. to come through. But we, we see him sort of sticking to his word, as it were, so far. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a really great example of, of the bottom-up work that you and your team do. Um to spend the time doing the research, and in this case, reading Amlo's book or books, and uh, you know maybe uh, those sales are going to spike on Amazon uh, now that uh, our <laughs> listeners hear about them. Another country that's been uh, in the headlines quite a bit is Venezuela, and uh, we're seeing that situation uh, change really almost on a daily basis now. At this point. Um, how do you make sense of that? Uh, I'm curious, um, how do you consider, is this an investable opportunity at some point? Can you just talk a little bit about process there? So as U.S. investors, we are prevented from investing in Venezuela bonds, both sovereign bonds and PDVSA bonds, PDVSA being the old company of Venezuela. Uh, the way we have approached the market is we always consider Venezuela to be very close to Iran and Cuba, two regimes that have defaulted some 40 or 60 years ago on their debts and then never paid them back. And therefore, the recovery rate on the bonds of those countries is basically zero. Now that the government seems to be about to leave, President Maduro or former President Maduro seems to be about to leave, we have the potential of these bonds paying back after restructuring. So what we have done is done the calculation of what is the recovery value for those bonds. And based on our best assessment, that recovery value is around 37 and a half, dollars per face of 100. The bonds have been trading last around 33. So the upside from 33 to 37 and a half doesn't seem to be compelling enough for us to buy them. Right. So it's a situation that you're continuing to monitor closely. Technically, you can't invest today. Even when we could invest, we had decided not to, but things are continuing to change rapidly. So it's potentially something that could be interesting down the road, but the math has to make sense in terms of the potential uh, recovery rates. Right. And I think perhaps if I could add on Pedavesa from a corporate perspective also, our focus always continues to remain on the fundamentals of the corporate. And I think Pedavesa specifically, we're just not able to analyze it to the depth that we typically would analyze because one, there's very little current financial information provided from the management team at Pedavesa. And the other thing, of the very dated financial information that we can find, this is a company that the business model is currently not sustainable. And therefore, it just doesn't make it sway onto our buy list in terms of the way we would prefer to analyze corporates. Right, right. So while you are looking at corporates in more challenged geographies, you obviously need things like financial statements to be able to make value decisions. Absolutely. Okay, so as we take it all in and we think about the different uh, sub-asset classes, the different opportunities, the different drivers across sovereign, local currency, corporate debt, what I'd like to do is get an understanding of how you think about investing across these different sub-asset classes. So we recently spoke with Martin Horn on the high-yield side. We recently spoke with David Nagel on the investment-grade side, and both Martin and David talked about these more opportunistic-type strategies where they're investing across the different sub-asset classes. So, um, Tunde, maybe can we start with you there? Is is this an appropriate way to think about investing in emerging market debt? 
Absolutely. I think to that point, because we have three sub-asset classes within EMD, I think it makes for a very interesting investment opportunity where a client can come to us and say, I'm not quite sure how to do the sub-asset allocation, but within that, I will delegate this to you guys and you can pick and make the asset allocation for us. And that that's where we have our blended total return product, which allows us as a team to do the asset allocation on the behalf of the clients where we can make the allocation to the local and the hard currency sovereign mm-hmm. and the hard currency corporate as we see fit, as we see value emerge within the various sub-asset classes. I think also that what we're seeing more and more of is these blended um, mandates that are coming through where you're starting to get a bit of high yield, US high yield, European high yield, some uh, structured products mm-hmm. as well as EM built into that, which is offering even more diversification for the clients. Right. Interesting. So it's sort of a best ideas type of portfolio. Correct. And what we also actually have, which probably worth mentioning, is we also have a short duration strategy, which also is perhaps an interesting opportunity also for investors who are a bit more sensitive to what the Fed might be doing or treasury rates movement, which is a very low volatility, very low duration product, which gives you a very steady five and a half percent yield for just under two years of duration. And that's another product that we found was quite attractive, which uh, performed quite well in 2018, which was a, a year of quite high volatility. Right. Somewhat more defensive, I guess, than some of your other Correct. Uh, EM strategies. Correct. So as we finish up here, um, I just wanted to ask you, looking ahead for the rest of 2019, knowing everything you know and given the macro backdrop, um, what is your sort of overall message to Bearings clients? And Tunde, let's start with you. I would say as we sit today, we expect 2019 to be a slightly more favorable backdrop for EM as an asset class relative to 2018. I think within that, we, you know, we would like to leave the clients the message that we as a team, we focus very much on the bottom up fundamentals of the investments that we make. So we're less likely to ride on trends. We're very much focused on the sustainability of a lot of the investments that we make and the bottom up fundamentals of that. And within that, we're layering on what we see as the technicals picture of that in terms of the demand flows and the fund flows and the supply side things. I think the other thing that we're quite focused on for 2019 is the election cycle coming through within EM and what sort of volatility that might throw out for us. And that's why within the team, we focus and complement that with due diligence trips on the ground in a lot of these countries to get a lot more enriched color of the macro backdrop where we're making the investments. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I would stress exactly that. Uh, We're not out of the woods. We think it should be better, but the bottom-up analysis that we do should carry the day. Yeah, that's great. Well, Ricardo, Tunde, it's been a really enlightening discussion. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to hear more from the team here at Bearings, please go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and search Bearings. Or you can find us on the web at bearings.com. That's B-A-R-I-N-G-S.com. Thanks again.